Hey, and welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast, where we speak with the leading entrepreneurs, organizations, ecosystem builders, and investors designing and enabling new food solutions in Scandinavia. My name is Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. My guest today is Gustav Johansson. He's behind Sweden's largest vegan food blog. He's also the author of two cookbooks. One is a vegan's guide to common recipes for the Swedish kitchen, and the other is a collaboration with the World Wildlife Fund and the Swedish Olympic Committee to provide sustainable plant-based recipes for athletes. I met Gustav at the Eat Forum and was blown away by how he is using his platform to help more people transition to a flexitarian diet that's good for their health and for the environment. His secret is comfort food. Gustav has developed a trove of recipes that don't require consumers to sacrifice the taste they love or the dishes they grew up with in order to eat more sustainably. To accompany this, he also works with supermarket chains and food entrepreneurs to make sure that the right kind of vegan products that people want come onto the market. He also develops new recipes to make sure there are resources available online about how to use new products. In this conversation, we cover a wide range of topics, including how new products are released in Sweden, I didn't know, but it only happens three times a year, and why Swedes seem to be leading the charge when it comes to embracing a vegan diet. So the first question is, when did you first realize, or was there a moment when you realized you wanted to work with food? I think the moment when I realized that I wanted to work with food was the moment I realized that I actually could work with food. Because it's one thing to be interested in food that I've been for most of my adult life. Uh, I was raised in a home where my father cooked a lot. And when I became a vegetarian, I really quite um, quickly realized that if I wanted to eat anything good again, I had to learn to cook it myself. So my food interest started really early at like 19 years old. And then I started this blog until it came to a point where I realized that it was big enough for me to actually do something serious with. I had no, I had absolutely no idea that I could be working with it before. And I was working in uh, the NGO sector beforehand as a project leader and developer. So I was doing something totally different. So the idea to work with food kind of came along with the actual actual possibility to do it when there was you could actually do this for for a living. And I was, all right, that's weird, but let's try it. Something like that. So, yeah, so it's two different things to me, really, to be interested in foods and then actually being able to work with it. That's two different things. So you have this blog. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is and how it got started? Yeah, sure, absolutely. In Swedish, it's called jävligt uh, gott, which means directly translated devilishly good and it started as i said i I became a vegetarian when i was 19 mostly from health reasons mainly in the beginning i was a a little bit overweight and i I just ate junk food and i felt that i needed uh, to challenge myself in some way to really get a hold of myself and to start both eating more healthy and sustainable and also to prove to myself that I actually wasn't a little self-indulgent uh, turd with no self-control. <laughs> so I needed to find something really hard to do. And I thought, if I can become a vegetarian, then I can do anything. It was like my Mount Everest, because I was raised in this very meaty home with a father who was a great chef, but loved to cook meat and dairy products. So I thought, if I could become a vegetarian, I could do almost anything. So I did it for a, for a year. 
and I lost like 15 kilos. And in the process, I kind of became more aware that now that I had distant, distance, distanced myself from meat eating, I realized that I didn't really actually need the meat in order to feel good and to be satisfied. And I absolutely didn't need it to be healthy. Uh, so that kind of gave me the, the distance to the meat in order to also see the more ethical parts of it that I absolutely did not need or want to put animals through any kind of suffering in order to sustain my pleasures. But then after this first year of uh, realizations and uh, weight dropping, I kind of came to a point where the long-term game actually came into play, where I realized that almost everything that I had learned and loved to eat beforehand was now off the table. And I really felt that that was a really hard thing to accept. To me, food is really important. I, and I really, really, really love uh, the kind of foods that I, uh, and dishes that I grew up with. And I felt that if I can't find a way to combine these two, to both eat good and do good, then this is not going to be a long-term game for me. And I really felt since I'd become more of an ethical, convinced vegetarian that I was, I didn't want to start eating meat again. So I started to experiment in many different ways. And after a couple of years, I came to a point where I, I had experimented so much that I didn't really remember anymore what I was doing. So I needed to start to document what I, what I, my recipes. And I started this blog as just a way to write down what I was doing. And this was around 2011, I think, which the climate awareness in Sweden was really about to, to grow. And Al Gore was on the news all the time talking about um, where is everything going and it's, we have problems. And more and more people started to realize that food was actually a great way to reduce your climate impact. And, more, and by that, more and more people started to Google vegetarian meatballs and burgers and so on. And where I, five years ago, hadn't found very much at all, when I Googled that, uh, people started to find me. And the blog just grew very, very rapidly. For a couple of years, it doubled in size every year from maybe 10,000 readers a year to when I realized something big was happening, I had uh, 50,000 readers a month. And I was, it was just a hobby, something that I was really not giving much effort into other than for my own personal pressure. I started to try to see what I could do with it. And then it took like six months and it was a full-time job. It, it went from zero to nothing in really a very short time. Uh, so that was in 2016. And since then, I've been working full-time with the blog. And now, like I said, I'm releasing two cookbooks this uh, August, and I'm uh, uh, holding a lot of uh, cooking classes, both for professional chefs and for uh, prefer uh, private persons and for companies. And uh, I'm doing several different projects. I, among ones, I have a big collaboration this year with uh, one of Sweden's largest hamburger chains that's called Boston Burgers. There's a lot of <laughs> cursing going on in my business world right now, but, uh, who I'm helping to veganize most of their menu. And I'm also putting a burger of the month. It's really grew quite uh, a lot since that uh, first day. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible journey for a little hobby project that's now blossomed into something so much bigger. But part of what's really fascinating is this concept of we all know we need to eat a lot less meat and move towards something like a vegan vegetarian diet. 
But a lot of the times it's coming out with these new foods or new alternative proteins people aren't used to in their kitchen. And that's where you've been so fantastic is remaking these old traditional recipes or things that people treat as comfort food. So can you talk a little bit about the process of how you inspire and educate and help people realize that it is possible for them not to give up what they love, but still be eating in a greener way? Yeah, thank you. I think that uh, your your question really formulates what I what I believe in very much. That if we're going to help people to transition into a more sustainable diet, we need to look at the foods that they actually already love and see if we can make those more accessible and and better for them, uh, rather than to try to change people into loving something else. It's really a hard process. Because um, one of the things that I realized early on when I started to work with the blog and started to think about what am I doing that people are finding it attractive? Why, why are people looking at my blog and not any other blog? And I, I realized that this idea that I had with trying to recreate my favorite dishes was something that I think resonated with a lot of people. Uh, and I formulated this idea uh, about three important cornerstones in what makes people being able to transition into a more sustainable diet. And I think the first important thing is that you need, in order to eat better, you need to feel inspired. You need to feel that there are, there is food out there that you are attracted to that will be better for you. And then you need to see that this can be a lot of different kinds of food depending on who you're talking to. Some people have salads, some people have meatballs, and some people have burgers and barbecuing and whatever. But it's important that these people, most people, everybody, get inspired and find and realize that there is food out there that can be suitable to them. And then you really need a broad broad variety of different kinds of foods. So you need to create these dishes and put them out there so you know know that they're available. The second thing you need is uh, education because when you know it's possible to eat good food, you need to know how to do it. So you need to educate, you need to give people the tools in order to do this. And I've been doing that a lot with uh, and combining these two, both the inspiration and the education, simply by creating recipes, both to see, all right, which dishes am I missing and dishes are trending right now. Pork, for example, was a big thing a couple of years ago or now burgers. So let's try to find the foods that people like and make that more accessible by making it plant-based. And then through the recipes, you can teach people how to cook them. Because most people, you have to realize, most people are not very interested in cooking. They are not really good at it and they don't want to be good at it because most people are like me with cars. I love cars. I like the driving cars, I like having cars, but I know nothing about cars. When they break down, I have to pay someone a lot of money to fix it because I don't actually know anything about cars just because I consume them. And most people are like that with food. Most people aren't really that interested in knowing the backends of how to transform a recipe. So that's why they need me to do it. I can help them by simply you know, simplify the process and try to make it as easy as possible to for them to to transition. And the last part is you need for it to be accessible because when you know that it's possible and you know how to do it, you need to be able to get a hold of it. So that's also why I'm trying to both collaborate with different products uh, product companies in order to help the products to reach the market as 
good as possible and to get the best product market fit, if you can say so. Because um, that's really important, both from the producer's perspective. They want as good um, product market fit as possible in order to get and their products out to the consumers. But the consumers need this as well because there's so many different products out there right now. And uh, it can be quite the jungle and hard to see how to use all these new things. And that's really uh, an area where I can help to ease in the, the meeting between the consumer and the producers a bit more. Can you share some more examples of how you're working with entrepreneurs and new food products, as well as these producers to create that product market fit and make sure these alternative proteins or alternative products actually succeed? I do that in two steps, uh, mostly in the second step, uh, but uh, sometimes also in the first one where we discuss what kind of trends do I see, what uh, do I miss on the market and what things are I do I hear people request like better cheeses or more premium products or so on? So I can both be like a trend analyst in some way to help the companies to see which products are actually missing and what in the segments today is good and what's not good and why, because I have a lot of experience in that field. And the other one is when a new product is coming out, I try to get hold of it as quickly as possible and try to experiment it experiment with it and see in which kind of recipes and which kind of uh, uh, context that this does this product work the best and then i try to f uh, create as many as many possible recipes as possible to show uh, consumers how to use this product so that when they are standing in the grocery store find this for the first time and they try to google it they will find not only a product place a product page on the on the on the company website but they will also find recipes explaining how to use this product and what where not to use this product and so on and mostly uh, i use this um, i so i try to create uh, collaborations with companies where I actually get paid to do this pro process um, and by that uh, we also get the possibility for the companies to use these recipes to push them out even further so that when um, producers like consumers actually are standing in the uh, grocery store, they will actually find these recipes. So that's one of the things, trying to create product market fit by actually helping consumers to know what to do with these new products. It's also great because you can see what consumers are liking by tracking which recipes get the most hits and how that product should be used, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I get tons of different kinds of data, both on which kind of recipes people are liking the most and both from a dish perspective. People like creamy pastas, <laughs> classical dishes, but also from a product, product uh, perspective, which kind of products are people actually getting more engaged in and which products are just passing by, like yeah, this is yesterday's news or this is not um, as good, maybe, or, or so on. We had this um, uh, thing, for example, a year ago, maybe, when a new product called Shapeable Mints was introduced to the Swedish market. And you could really see like people were totally <laughs> engaged with this product because it was uh, giving people something that was previously unattainable without having a lot of processing and, and so on. Um, and people really went through the roof. And it's really interesting to see that 
both what are people doing with it and so on. And then I can both search the market and the, the different forums and so on to see what people are doing and then try to find those ideas that maybe are rising up from in very small um, community-based uh, uh, vegan Facebook groups, for example, and take those best ideas and try to bring it out to a bigger public. Can you describe what it's like to launch a new product in Sweden? And if somebody's thinking of doing that, how they should go about it or yeah, yeah. what the process is? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's quite hard, actually, in Sweden, because we have, uh, from the grocery store side, there's just, I think it's three different windows each year when new products are allowed to be launched into the market. So when new products are coming, you can be sure that there are a lot of products coming at the same time at these three different windows. And in order to get through one of those windows, you also have to pitch the product to the grocery store chains. And I think there's like five or six big ones in Sweden. And when if you get the pitch done and you get it released in this window, then you're also competing with the, the, the consumer's attention a lot. And if you're not a very hyped product, then it could be really hard to just be a new product on a shelf among a lot of other things. The most successful product launches I've seen are the ones that are able to create some kind of hype for the product beforehand, before launch. Maybe through introducing it first at a restaurant in a collaboration, maybe or doing influencer collaborations beforehand to get it out and to get the hype started. Because they're very, it's very sensitive for which kind of exposure you get in the grocery stores. And that can be really shaped by the, the, the staff in the grocery stores. If they feel that this is something that people are interested in, then you get more exposure and the, the possibilities of you to get rebuys are way much higher than if you're just putting an item on the, on the shelf where it's really kind of invisible because you have to realize that most people who are shopping for groceries have like maybe 100 articles that they're buying and that's just it and it includes like so paper and uh, yeah, coffee filters and so, so it's people aren't shopping that very many different kinds of items and to introduce one new item into those 100 things it's really hard uh, so you need that to lift people's awareness really before you're introducing something on the market if you're going to get a great push, I think. So it's and it's really hard. And among vegan products today, it's getting harder and harder since the market is getting bigger and bigger, I'd say. So it's um, for a couple of years ago, it was enough to just be vegan and be available. But nowadays, it's really not. The game is way much harder. You need to be really good and you need to do your... Um, you need really, you'd really need to market your products. And then if you get a big uh, success with the marketing, you, you also need to be able to meet the large um, uh, demand as well. So you need to be able to scale up your products quite fast. Because some products, like the uh, Shapeable Mints, was such a hit that it sold, even for a big company, sold out very fast. And for a smaller company, that can be really hard because you can't really meet with the uh, demand. So it's a, uh, it can be hard for, to launch a new product if you're not backed by big money in Sweden, I'd say. Yeah, it's the balance of you need to build the hype, but that also means you need to do the fulfillment and getting both at the same time. It's a very happy medium of 
hitting the sweet spot. And I know several small companies that's actually trying to actually stall the hype a bit because um, it's an int- like for example I know this uh, tempeh product in Sweden made from uh, fermented yellow peas um, and they've been quite the the thing in vegan circuits for quite a while but the they can't produce it fast enough for to actually want to push it to a larger audience right now um, so it's uh, yeah so it's those balance that's hard and just a practical question, what are the windows where they're launching new products? Do you know which weeks those are? Uh, I think it's week 38, 19, and 7, something like that. I'm not exactly sure, but you have like four to six months. And if you can't prove shelf life by then and reviability, then you're out, more or less. Can you describe to what you see as the overall climate in Sweden when it comes to alternative proteins and what the trends are of what's popular and crowding the space. It's uh, really good and it's really getting better, I'd say. Because uh, the, um, the awareness in the public eye for these products are really growing. You can see in the, um, both on the frozen and the uh, fresh side, uh, we have like 20 to 30% growth in these products each year. So it's, uh, but that's also going from quite slow figures to begin with. Um, so the, the overall awareness of uh, vegan products is quite good. And I think this is an interesting thing is that you, even in Sweden, we have this idea of vegan meats and substitutes being a little bit ugly and bad and not as uh, good as clean foods. Um, but that when you look at the numbers of what's actually selling and what's actually what do this new vegan or vegetarian trend actually bring about? It's a huge increase in those products, not in vegetables, so to say. So people might say one thing, but they're actually buying it a lot. Um, and the other thing that's interesting on a little bit higher plane is that the discussion about which quality and where these products are grown are is uh, really starting to take off. It's much more since the only not only vegans and vegetarians are buying these products nowadays it's flexitarians and meat eaters who's buying these products they're demanding the same things of these products as they're demanding of the everyday food it needs to be locally farmed if possible it needs to be sustainable and fair trade maybe even and ecological or bio, bio uh, organic and so on so that's putting quite an interesting uh, pressure on these producers to see if can you find alternatives to imported soy? Can you do this with uh, Swedish peas or oats or beans maybe? So that's kind of also the, the trend where we're seeing a lot of research and a lot of talk about how can we use Swedish products like peas and oats to use instead of uh, soy? And how do we do this? And are these products as healthy as they claim to be? And so on and so on. So that's quite a kind of a big discussion, I'd say, uh, on, um, on a more policy level. How can we do more of this in, in Sweden? And how can Swedish farmers actually be a part of this rather than feeling just a competition from them? Because otherwise it's like Spanish soy versus Swedish meat. And that's not really feasible in the discussion but if we could get uh, Swedish uh, beans versus Irish meat then we have a totally different discussion 
yeah, my impression is that Sweden is really leading the charge when it comes to veganism, also by the sheer number of restaurants that I see. And uh, I was eating in a Turkish buffet the other day, and they had vegan shawarma, mm. they had vegan chicken, they had all different kinds of options, and I was not expecting that at all. Yeah. Uh, so it really feels like it's already penetrated the market when it comes to just being accessible in the supermarket, restaurants when you go out to eat, lunchtime options. Absolutely. I don't see that so much in the other countries so far, but we'll see who catches no, it. I, it's, it's, it's absolutely so, but I think it, an interesting thing there is the, the attitude towards vegan food is really, really good in Sweden and is really improving because I think a lot of people see that have realized that vegan food is uh, first and foremost, it doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be weird. But the, the thing that's not happening is uh, veganism and, and the, the idea of people going all in. Because if you look at the numbers on the amounts of vegans and vegetarians in Sweden, it's actually been quite the same for the, the last uh, five or six years. But the, the numbers of flexitarians, uh, meat eaters eating a lot of vegetarians and vegan food is uh, rising incredibly fast. So the thing is that people aren't going vegan, but people are very much okay with vegan food. And that's a different thing. Uh, and that's uh, helping these trends and helping these restaurants to get a lot of customers. But what you're not seeing is a huge rise in uh, people going all in. Uh, and I think that's really interesting because I think, and my theory about that is that when you look, you have three major reasons, I'd say, why people are eating vegetarian food is for climate reasons, health reasons, or uh, animal reasons. And the big wave of uh, vegan and vegetarian awareness in Sweden has been really brought on by health and climate reasons, uh, not very much animal oriented. Uh, and from an animal perspective, animal ethics perspective, it's really important that you follow through because um, if you um, if you say that you're against animal cruelty, and every time you do eat animals, you're part of the cruel system. So the only good, reasonable, logical thing is to stop eating them totally and not use any products from them. That's the logical step. So um, the ethical argument argues for. Uh, all in mentality. But from a climate or health perspective, there's actually nothing that demands you to go go all in. If you look at the Eat Lancet report, they say you can eat 100 grams of meat each week and it's fine. You, it's sustainable. You can do it. And from a, a health perspective, as long as you don't eat too much, you can you can eat some meat. There, neither of those two reasons, which are the biggest ones, if you ask people today in Sweden, why are people eating vegetarians? They don't demand an all-in strate strategy from you. Yeah, and I, I think a big thing here is if it's delicious, you're going to eat it. That's it. You know, you don't even necessarily necessarily have to think, is it vegan? If it tastes good, then you don't think about it. You want it anyways. You crave it, and it's a totally different attitude. Exactly, but the word vegan has been very stigmatized before uh, but the, the the idea about plant-based food has been and i think that's what differs in sweden from a lot of other countries uh, it's really been destigmatized the the idea of eating plant-based it's something that anyone can do 
if you have 55-year-old businessmen eating vegan food for lunch in, in Sweden today, that's not really the case in, in France, I think. And what I'm kind of trying to do as well with my new cookbook is to broaden the idea of what kinds of food uh, are allowed to be plant-based. Because I think if you look at if you look back to maybe the 90s or, or and so on and look at what kinds of foods were allowed to be plant-based, it was a lot of thinking based on this classic meat norm that normal food contains meat and dairy. And with normal food, I mean like traditional Swedish food like meatballs or burgers or whatever, food that people are used to eat. So um, you don't value the food by saying that it has to be meat in order to, to be meatballs. It's just a fact. It's, um, it's like saying you need to have a guitar in rock and roll, otherwise it's not rock and roll. It's not an opinion, it's just a fact. And that fact has for a long time kept people from allowing vegan food to be these kinds of normal foods. So when you look at uh, vegan food, you, you look outside the normal food. You look to the Indian cuisine or the Thai cuisine or the maybe the Lebanese cuisine, which is more naturally free from these products. Uh, and that's for a long time been been fine. But what's happening now is that since both the Lancet report and the new IPCC report and so on, it's really demanding for us to take quite a steep decrease in our consumption of meat. It's not enough anymore to have this idea, but when I want to eat comfort food, I can eat meat because that wouldn't be enough. You can't eat that much meat. So you need to find ways of actually allowing the comfort food to also be plant-based. And I think in this, it, it opens up a whole new idea about not differentiating vegan food from normal food. Vegan food can be normal food. It's couldn't, you can see that it actually doesn't has to be uh, meat in this product in order for it to be or this dish, in order for it to be the dish that it's supposed to be. And that's really something I think yeah, it's happening right now a lot. Uh, people are broadening their perspective on what kinds of foods are allowed to be vegan. I think that's really, really interesting because then you get, then you're creating a new possibility for people that you don't have to change almost at all in order to eat more vegan food. You can eat more or less the same things as you've always done. And I think that's a hugely important step. It's like when people realize that what people need in order to ditch the fossil fuel cars, it's not collective traffic and it's not bikes, it's electric cars because people love cars. You just need to make the cars better. And it's the same thing. You're not gonna make people stop eating burgers for the climate. That's just not gonna happen because people love burgers too much and the climate is too far away. So you need to find what's good as possible. And that's when people are going to transition. And burgers is one thing, but you really need to make the comfort foods sustainable as well, if you really want to make it. Otherwise, it's just those things that someone else can like. Uh, and you are you get a free card because you like, like bacon too much and you can't replace bacon. I'd like to switch gears a little bit now and ask you a big question, which is, what is your vision for what the Nordic food tech ecosystem should look like in 10 to 15 years? I think yeah, the, the very important thing here is that we need to create an ecosystem that's uh, involving farmers and helping uh, Nordic farmers to see themselves as part of this shift that's happening. You can see both farmers and vegans and everybody talking 
over each other's head and not really meeting in the center of the thing, which is we're having a climate crisis and we need to solve this and we need to make it in a sustainable way. Because you need to remember that sustainability is not about just about the target that you're aiming at. It's about how you reach that target and how you sustain that target when you're at it. So you need both the social and the economic parts of this new system to be in place. People need to like this thing and they need to be part of making it in it. Uh, and I think where it's really not working right now is at the farmer side, because uh, like I said earlier, we have this idea of a conflict in Sweden where it's uh, between Swedish meat and Spanish soy. We get a system we can create our own products from produce grown and, and refined and sold in Sweden, then we're not really doing this the way we should be doing it. Because if you look, at, now I'm getting really technical, but if you look at the Swedish national policy for agriculture, uh, agriculture that was taken in the uh, parliament, I think last year, we have four major goals for the long-term Swedish agricultural sector. And it, one of them is that we need to face the climate challenges and to make our agriculture more sustainable. But one is that we want to export more, and one is that we need to be more self-sufficient. And in the same time as the fourth goal is having a more aware consumer base, that's a part of this system. But to me, exporting more and being more self-sustainable, at the same time as we're lowering our climate impact, it's, it's, not just, it's simply not happening without changing the system, because the system is flawed today. Primarily from the fact that we have a huge amount of food waste and we have a huge amount of resource ineffectivity uh, in the agricultural sector connected to animal farming. Animal farming is just taking up simply too much land and creating too little calories and too much uh, climate uh, problems. So we need to find a way, if we're going to create more, both for export and both for ourselves, we need to find a way of doing that more sustainable. And to me, the only logical reason and the only logical way forward is to reduce food waste and to increase the amount of products in our own system. We're not going to do it any other way. And by that, we need to get the farmers and especially the meat and dairy producing farmers to see that in order to create this more sustainable system, we need to lower the amount of meat and dairy that we produce and instead start to produce high yield uh, crops for human consumption that we can refine and sell for a higher price both export and so we need to see that this is both an opportunity for exports we can export idea like ideas like oatly and products like oatly for example which is a great example in sweden and we can also create and be more self-sufficient by using our farmlands in a much more efficient way there's uh, tons of the uh, research showing that if we turn our production system to more plant-based food, we can both feed our and a large part of the world in the same area, even less area than we use in Sweden today. So it's absolutely no problem with the actual area we have 
to produce a more efficient system, but we need them to do it alongside with the farmers who are producing this food and not just see it at the yeah, producer side where we're using maybe imported soy and so on to do something else. We need to have a full, more locally based system. And from that, we need to help then other countries to do the same. And I think that's what we should export mostly in from Sweden. We should export ideas and products like Oakley, but we should also export the way we create these ecosystems. Because I think that's something that Sweden could really be one of the main uh, and first countries to succeed with. So I, I really think that this is possible and I think it's really going to happen. And it might happen. But as of now, I feel that the farmers' unions are not really seeing this as a possibility rather than a, uh, someone who's messing with the status quo. And that's really sad, I think. Is there any way our community can help you in what you're working on now? Well, absolutely. Partly because what I see that I'm trying to do is uh, have several sides. One part is just to create more and better products for the community, for the consumers. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to do. So get in touch with me. If you need your products out on the Swedish markets, I'm very much um, uh, here. should try to help you to get product market fit and to uh, consume, uh, communicate with the consumers. That's one thing. I think that's really something that uh, it's really important, not just from my perspective as a in my business, but I think uh, really putting your ear towards the consumers and see what are they looking for and see how are you going to communicate this in a way that people are actually going to understand what you're doing. Because a big difference between vegan products and animal products is that chicken is chicken. You can start another chicken company, but you're going to produce a product that's quite similar to every other chicken producer out there. But a lot of the vegan products that are coming are totally new. People don't know what to do with them. So that's uh, you need to communicate with your consumers. That's one thing. And the other thing is really this, what I was talking about last with the, how the, the business needs, the, the entire network needs to change. You need to start to make your voice heard. We need to talk about how we're going to solve this in a sustainable, economical and social way. Uh, how are we going to get uh, Nordic farmers on the train? How are we going to make this happen in a sustainable way that, are, that engages the entire agricultural community uh, and not just building up walls? Because if you take Oatly, for example, they've had this hugely successful campaign in Sweden where they more or less antagonized the Swedish uh, milk farmers by saying that uh, oat milk is better than oat drink, because they can't call it milk anymore since this, com- this conflict, uh, is better than milk. Uh, but what they actually should be saying is that oat milk is the possibility for the Swedish milk farmers to have a better life. This is something that you can grow and get better return on. This is something that you can grow and not be as um, sensitive for climate change based on. And this is something that's actually not going to increase climate change as the things that you're doing right now. And that's a common interest. So I think um, that's something that I think the community of uh, food tech has to take responsibility for. You can't just see yourself as tech uh, 
agents. You need to see yourself as food agents and part of the food system and talk with the existing food system and try to find a middle way forward so that we don't just come in from the side and act like cool guys and try to shuffle our way through. But actually seeing how can we collaborate with these uh, farmers that actually want to be part of the solution, but are handed too few solution right now. Yeah, it's so important to make sure everybody comes to the table and that no one's left behind because it's something that affects all of us. Absolutely. And then obviously the last question has to be, what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you? You can find me very easily at uh, Instagram, for example, uh, where I'm at. Uh, or you can email me at Gustav, G-U-S-T-A-V, at javlikgott.se. Uh, and javlikgott is spelled J-A-V-L-I-G-T-G-O-T-T dot S-E. Fantastic. And we hope that you'll come up with uh, more cookbooks and recipes for the rest of the Nordic countries so we can benefit a little bit too. Yeah, uh, I think you absolutely could. Because I think uh, both of these cookbooks that I'm coming out with right now, I I hope would be uh, attractive for you as well. They're in Swedish, but um, maybe that's not the biggest problem. It's not in Japanese. Uh, (laughs) And uh, the the one with vegan uh, classic traditional food for Swedes is quite similar, I think, to Danish and Nor- uh, Nor- Norwegian food. But the other one, actually, uh, which is called Vego i världsklass, uh, veggie food for world uh, world champions, you could translate it into, is a project with the, the Olympic Committee and the WWF, where we've uh, cooked uh, uh, plant-based training food. So it's a hugely... Uh, massive book where two chapters are written by two of the Swedish leading experts on nutrition and uh, climate and um, and, uh, climate questions and how they relate to plant-based foods as well. So I think you could really, really uh, use these two books, uh, uh, even if in Denmark and Norway and Finland and Iceland. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you for calling. All right, guys, that's all for today. You can find the show notes and more episodes at nordicfoodtech.io. And if you like what you hear, please be generous and take the time to rate the show or share it on social media. This is all about creating better food solutions, and we can't do that without your help. I'm Annalisa Winther, and let's spread the word about the Nordic food tech ecosystem together. See you next time.